my thanks to Clark, who was a friend. Um, I get to see Clark uh, most summers in Aspen. And uh, you know, everything just is a little nicer uh, in a beautiful mountain resort. But it's, it's great to, to be here with uh, Clark. Uh, Luis, um, every time I hear your rector speak, I'm inspired by him. And that was certainly true this morning in his sermon. Um, it was uh, powerful. I see Luis uh, Leon most often on the tennis court. So um, I t my takeaway is uh, love thy neighbor and call the lines correctly. <laughs> I've seen your rector when some on the court have not followed the second injunction, <laughs> and he was not happy. Um, the topic that was listed uh, for my comments this morning, uh, as you know, was grading Obama's presidency. And I have to be honest, I just didn't have the heart for it. Uh, there are lots of things you could say to grade uh, him or anything else. But for me, this wasn't a week where, at the end of it, I felt like uh, assigning grades, but of talking a little more uh, directly uh, with you. Um, if your household is like mine, this was a, a traumatic week. Uh, I found uh, in dealing with my wife Eve, who's here, with my three children, uh, in dealing with my own work, I really had to, to focus on the kinds of big, uh, troubling issues that we sometimes uh, put aside. I'll tell you first about my Tuesday. If you're a columnist and your column appears Wednesday, you have a problem. <laughs> so my problem, I thought, was going to be solved by writing a first column for the uh, first couple of editions of the newspaper. We still actually print newspapers, as I hope you know. And so they go to, go to press. And so I wrote a column about what Barack Obama should think about doing in foreign policy over the remaining two months of his presidency. And I thought, that's going to hold up, and you know, that'll be safe. And even if we don't have a result uh, by 4 in the morning when the last uh, press run uh, goes, that's OK. It'll be. But then, uh, on that Tuesday afternoon, there was, uh, for reasons that we'll look back on and I think want to examine uh, carefully, there was a sense that you could pick up, uh, certainly uh, on TV, on the radio, that uh, Hillary Clinton, who seemed way ahead in the polls was going to have, you know, a fairly early victory. You know, the predictions were it might be 10 o'clock before we knew. So I wrote a second column, and that was about what Hillary Clinton's foreign policy would be about. And uh, it's kind of, a, it's sent it out to a few of the uh, sources I talked to, who were her closest advisors, and I said, this is for your scrapbook. Um, it never appeared in print, but it, it goes through all we could have said about the positions that she'd taken and the, all the work that had been done thinking about where the country was going. Uh, and then uh, late, around 11, uh, I set to work on the column that I needed to write, which was, what could I tell readers about Donald Trump's foreign policy? Uh, I'm going to share with you at the end of these remarks the few of the thoughts that I, that I had, but 
uh, that sort of illustrates, I think, what someone like me uh, needs to do. Uh, you know, our job is to write about the world as it is and uh, uh, explain to readers uh, what people think, explain what the questions that you should care about, uh, engage what those are, and then to hold people accountable and to, 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 to write about their successes and their failures. Uh, and so in that sense, as, as turbulent as this week was, um, I, I don't think it really changes what I do very much. Even, if you'll forgive me, I hope, for saying that even in the middle of that Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, came downstairs, wasn't sleeping very well, and gave me a hug and said, I hope you'll keep doing just exactly what you do. And I, I think that's true for a lot of us, that that sense of continuity and the, the job that we do, which we hope serves higher goals of the country and its welfare, in my little way, I'm not a public servant, I'm just a journalist, but I, you know, I intend to do next week pretty much what I did the, the week before. I did find that in talking to my children, and I'll bet uh, many people in this uh, congregation shared this experience, it was important to help steady them. This was a, a traumatic week. Uh, the rhetoric during the campaign was so upsetting, as I'll say later, on both sides. But I, I found myself talking to my oldest daughter, who's uh, just finished her residency uh, at Emory, who is about to go into a fellowship in infectious disease, who's one of these people who's really going to help uh, make our, our world better, but who was really uh, troubled. She has an 11-month-old um, baby, and she's worried about the world that this child will grow up in, you know, the degradation of the planet, the spread of the kind of disease that she tries so hard to cure. So we had a, a number of conversations, texts uh, on our phone, a lot of them. And the one that seemed to, to make sense to her was when I said, you, you're going to have to get up tomorrow and go light the lamp. And I think that's a simple way of what I would say to myself, my children. Uh, each of us ha has a different light, lamp to light definition of what that means, but um, I think that was helpful. My middle daughter lives in Shanghai, so she was watching these election returns uh, on the reverse clock. It was, it was uh, noon um, and then one o'clock in the afternoon in Shanghai, but she was in a bar with Chinese and expats, and I saw, because she would send me some photographs that you know, people were, were, it was early in the afternoon to be drinking, but they were, the, the, those faces were. And uh, finally she sent me one. There was somebody who was passing around a write-in ballot uh, that had uh, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, and, and somebody had, had written in, maybe one of the Chinese, had, had taken the write-in slot and, and written in Xi Jinping. <laughs> so uh, uh, she got through that that day. It's, it was fascinating, obviously, to watch these enormous events from the perspective of another country that is going to play crucially in how this presidency uh, evolves. And then finally, my, my third uh, daughter, is 26, is a school teacher. And I just want to uh, mention her in particular because I think the, t the children that she teaches, the, the youngest who've heard, who hear these things, hear the rhetoric, the invective, the uncommon, the coarse language sometimes on, on both sides. 
really have been traumatized. Uh, my daughter is a very liberal person, but she said one of the most important things that she did this week was to defend a Trump supporter against bullying from uh, her classmates and intervene and explain why that's not acceptable. Uh, and I love that. And I also love the fact that an older teacher in the school where she teaches came to her, a little 26-year-old, and when I say little, my daughter barely scratches five feet. And this older teacher came to her really very upset and traumatized and said, you seem to be handling this well. Can I talk to you about what I'm going through? And I think there were a lot of, of tears. So that's three little snapshots of what I think um, we really need to bear in mind, which is that people are really going to need help and contact. Uh, NPR had a wonderful uh, segment on Friday about election stress, the real physical harm that comes from uh, the anxiety that people feel, a sense of displacement, as, as uh, your rector said, of, of homelessness uh, in, in this period, and that, that those effects really are, are cured best by uh, being with other people and doing good things. Uh, the recommendation, there was a, a person who was interviewed on this show from the uh, Stanford's Center for Compassion and something, compassion. Who knew that Stanford had a center for <laughs> compassion and, and healing? But, but she said, uh, we recommend to people that, uh, that the best thing when you're really feeling um, pain, trouble, don't know how to steer your way through the future is to volunteer, to get out of yourself, to go uh, help other people. So I, I found uh, all that um, useful. I want to share uh, two um, quite sharply opposed views of, of what uh, happened and how to think about it um, so as to kind of put myself in the middle of, of, of these. Uh, the first, you may have read it, appeared in the Washington Post, appeared online, uh, mostly in the Washington Post. It's from uh, Garrison Keeler, the man we all know, from, many of us know from Lake Wobegon, uh, the host of that show, uh, uh, Minnesotan, proud of it. Uh, irreverent, uh, you know, lapsed Lutheran. We all know if we listen to a show how funny he can be about, about his world. But here's a little bit of what he wrote, as I say, irreverently. Uh, we're so exhausted from thinking about this election. Millions of people will take up leaf raking and garage clearing with intense pleasure. To all the patronizing BS, forgive me, we read about Trump expressing the white working class's displacement and sense of loss of the American dream. I say, Theh. go put your head under cold water. Resentment is no excuse for bald-faced stupidity. America is still the land where the waitress's kids can grow up to become physicists and novelists and pediatricians but it helps a lot if the waitress and her husband encourage good habits and the ambition to use your God-given talents and the kids aren't plugged into electronics day and night. And then he concluded about talking about the dilemmas Trump voters have ahead. He said, we liberal elitists are now completely in the clear. The government is in Republican hands. Let them deal with them. 
Democrats can spend four years raising heirloom tomatoes, <laughs> meditating, reading Jane Austen, traveling around the country, tasting artisan beers, and let the Republicans build the wall and carry on the trade war with China and deport the undocumented and deal with opioids, and we Democrats can go for a long, brisk walk and smell the roses. <laughs> now, um, I, I love the, the irreverence of the tone of that, I don't, but I don't entirely agree with it, and, and I'll explain why by reading you the next selection that I brought this morning, and it's from someone who's very special for me. Uh, as Clark mentioned, I went to St. Albans School, and every year at St. Albans, from the seventh grade on till when I graduated in the twelfth grade, uh, there was one person in our class who won what was called the book, which was the award for the highest academic performance. And often, senior year included, there was somebody who came in a distant second. Uh, the distant second was me, and the person who won every year was a young man named Paul Francis Matthew Zahl, Z-A-H-L. Uh, he went on to Harvard, as I did. Uh, he became an Episcopal minister. Uh, he was dean of a cathedral in Birmingham, dean of another cathedral. Some of you may know him here because he was, uh, for a few years, the rector of All Saints Chevy Chase. Uh, and uh, among many other things, Paul Zoll is a, is a great preacher. And he and I have stayed friends across a political divide that's existed now for uh, 50 plus years, 54 years. Um, but here's what Paul wrote to me on, on Thursday that I want to share with you. This was in, a, in an email to me privately, but I asked him yesterday if, if he'd mind my sharing it, and he said he'd love it. As a traditional Christian, I felt myself attacked, not implicitly but explicitly, during the entire election cycle. I told some friends 18 months ago that I believed Trump would win even though I didn't expect to vote for him for the simple reason that what you resist persists. In other words, to the extent that the media was piling onto him, to that extent there would subsist resistance below the surface to that very piling on. It's a law gospel question, to use New Testament terms. The law increaseth the trespass, which is to say, the more one interdicts a phenomenon, the more reaction among those who, who identify with the phenomenon there is to the interdiction. The media, in my opinion, helped make this happen, albeit unwittingly. As Richard Nixon supposedly said, if everybody's attacking X, bet on X. I hope, David, you won't react harshly or angrily at me for stating this, but it is a fact that I felt personally attacked by the Democratic Party's current ethos as a Bible Christian. I wondered whether if Clinton won, I and others who believe as I do would be considered legitimate Americans anymore. I wrote my friend Paul back, dear Paul, in friendship and respect. This notion that the media made me do it baffles me, frankly. Each human brain and heart must weigh these choices, yes, prayerfully, in terms of what is best for our country. 
63% of those voting thought Trump was unqualified to be president. 61% thought he was temperamentally unsuited to be president, according to the exit polls. Yet people voted for him anyway, out of what? Spite, anger at the media? I see what has happened, and it makes me very sad, but each voter is responsible for making a wise decision, no? And Paul responded, and this is the last in this correspondence, no, David. <laughs> you can see why we start. we've been arguing since seventh grade. No, David. Many people don't make decisions rationally or even consciously. When people are told across the board that they are xenophobes, racists, misogynists, and Islamophobes for holding the views they do, whatever they are, they become hardened in those views. All I'm saying, says Paul, is that condemnation of people or groups of people, and this goes for all ideologies, left and right, always has the opposite effect. And then he again quotes, the law, i.e. judgment, condemnation. Judgment and condemnation increases sin, i.e. the very thing that the judgment is supposed to correct or educate. This is the central insight of St. Paul. Uh, Paul has been studying theology deeply. Uh, Paul, here's, here's how brilliant Paul is. He decided when he was rector of a church in South Carolina that he wanted to go study with the greatest Protestant theologian in Germany, but you could only do that in German, and Paul didn't speak German, so he taught himself German, got the congregation to raise money for him and his four, three or four children to traveled to Germany, took his doctor of theology in, in, in German. So uh, I wanted to sh share that with you because it's the kind of dialogue I was happy, conversation I was happy to be having this week. It's a little example of, you know, I couldn't look at this more differently than my friend Paul, and yet I know exactly what he means. Uh, if you were going to think of a way in which supporters of Secretary Clinton could have alienated, hardened the positions of those who disagreed. You couldn't really have scripted it uh, more decisively than the way it happened. And the same is obviously true on the other side. If, if you were Donald Trump wanting to really frighten and anger, uh, make fearful uh, those on the other side, you would have done it. So it just we just had this terrible mirror imaging of what reinforces uh, difference, what makes healing hard, and I'm happy just to think about how we're all going to start that. So I, I promised uh, Clark that I would say a little bit about uh, foreign policy. Um, you know, this is an awfully long wind-up for a short pitch, but uh, I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, it was the first part that I wanted to, to talk to you about. But I, I do want to just say a little bit about what I think we can expect from Donald Trump, and then I'd love to take questions as on a morning like this when people have been thinking themselves all week. I'd love just for people to make whatever comments they can. I hope you will when I, when I finish. But I just make four basic points about, about Trump. And I think the, the starting point is, is um, don't go into wild speculation about, you know, he might appoint this one or he might do that. 
just look carefully, uh, not with an ax in your hand, but carefully, at what he said during the campaign. And I think you can get a pretty good sense of what he's likely to do. And I, I will note that in general, these are not crazy things. I don't agree with all of them, but I don't think, I think they're not crazy. First thing that he obviously will do, he's, he, he, he said it repeatedly, often at, at real political cost, it seemed, is he's going to try to reach out to an increasingly uh, assertive, wounded, and potentially dangerous Russian president, Vladimir Putin, and try to sit down and make some kind of a deal with him. And, you know, we made fun of him for the way he put this, and uh, at a time when Russia's been so aggressive, it was odd to hear these comments, but he said it back in September, uh, that forum that was hosted by Matt Lauer, if he says great things about me, I'm going to say great things about him. Uh, and, uh, again, has made clear that his first priority is to try to get to a better, safer place in this relationship in which... Uh, cooperation is possible. Uh, you've got to be careful with that, but that's not a crazy idea. Uh, Dmitry Peskov, who was the spokesman for the Kremlin for President Putin, said on Thursday or Friday that uh, on most issues, the positions of Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin are profoundly close. That doesn't thrill me, frankly, but it does say that there's an opportunity for uh, dialogue of the kind that we knew. The situation that had been developing has, has been extremely dangerous, and it needed to change, and so that's the first thing. It's, uh, the second thing that I think you can say with some confidence is that there'll be some joint military alliance between Russia uh, and the United States, and uh, frankly, I'll add in Syria's President Bashar al-Assad, uh, in Syria to go after the Islamic State. We have been trying to avoid that, um, but in a half-hearted, halfway fashion, uh, going back to, to 2012. Uh, again, in, 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 the, in the debates, uh, Trump said, if the United States and uh, Russia get along well uh, and, and go after ISIS, that would be good. Uh, and he said uh, about Assad, uh, he, he was, was unfortunate way of saying it, he was much tougher and much smarter than Clinton, and that if the opposition should win uh, in Syria, you might well end up with something worse than Assad. And I have to say, as a careful analyst of this, the dominant force now among the opposition, unfortunately, but it's just a fact, is al-Qaeda. And the idea that the United States would ally with al-Qaeda uh, in Syria, we know, is wrong and unsustainable. So, again, I, I think the job of people like me is to watch this carefully so that things that are really wrong aren't done. But I think that's a, a second thing. Uh, it's clear that a third thing is that he will want Europe to pay more for its own defense. Uh, you know, he, he got into a lot of trouble during the campaign saying that... Uh, in effect, NATO membership, NATO response would be conditional on people making uh, contributions. Uh, and I think that weakens the feeling of Europeans that the United States is really committed to them, which is dangerous because then they have to seek solutions of their own. But the idea that they should, they should pay more of the bill, uh, presidents have been saying that for, for decades. And, and that's not a, a crazy thing. I have more worries of, in Asia, frankly. I just was in South Korea 
Uh, here's a disturbing number. Uh, re in a recent poll, 60% of South Koreans said that they thought their country should have its own nuclear weapons to deter North Korea that has nuclear weapons because they don't trust the United States to fulfill its nominal commitment to defend South Korea. And obviously, everything Trump said during this campaign deepens the anxiety. If you're a, a, a South Korean or a Japanese, you know, you, you may have been afraid of it before. They don't really mean it. And now here's somebody actually said it out loud. You know, you do it. Uh, I don't, we don't want to pay for it. So I think that's really a world where South Korea, Japan move quickly toward having nuclear weapons is a much more dangerous world. So um, I, I worry, I just would add in Europe, about the knock-on effects of Trump's election. There are strong right-wing parties in, we saw in Britain with the Brexit uh, shock, the prelude to this, uh, but there's similar strong movements in France, in Germany, in Italy, in Spain, uh, they're across Europe, and uh, those movements will take encouragement from Donald Trump's election, and he'll have to decide as president whether he wants to encourage them further, you know, implicitly stand with them in their revolt, in which case the European Union structure really is going to rock, again, in a way that will, I think, be very dangerous for us, or whether he's going to try to shore up the elements of, of stability. And then uh, finally, he, he couldn't have been clearer that he wants to alt alter the terms of trade in, in Asia, um, uh, force China to revalue uh, its currency so the terms of trade are, are different and it's much harder for China to export products. China is uh, remarkably vulnerable uh, right now. It's got a, it's got a kind of Chinese uh, bubble, enormous debt. Their uh, debt levels have roughly doubled uh, since 2008, and people, even before Donald Trump's election, were looking at China and scratching their heads a little bit. So Trump will have some leverage. Uh, the, the fear that I have, but, but then I'm somebody who believes in international uh, free, free, free trade and openness, is that, is that protectionism begets more protectionism and that the possibility of a downward cycle, even if you're pumping a trillion dollars uh, of uh, spending into our economy for infrastructure is, uh, is potentially dangerous. So I'll close my comments and then turn to you with, with this um, final thought. The, the, at the end of this week, it seems like the longest week of my life. <laughs> but it's, here it is, Sunday morning. Uh, at, the, at the end of this week, um, I'm struggling, as we all are, to think, where is our country and the world going to be a year from now, four years from now? You know, I, I, it was important this morning, saying our prayers, to say a prayer for our, our President Barack and our President-elect Donald, and to get our minds around that. That's just a, that's just a fact. And being in denial and chanting, he's not my president, you know, it's, it's a fact. And I, as I said, I know what my responsibility is in that, in that world. Uh, this is a world of cynical strongmen. Those are the dominant people. Uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia is an example. Xi Jinping in China is an example. Uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in 
Turkey as an example, Duterte in the Philippines, I could go down the list, but we all know that this is a world that's been darkening in that sense, that, that the strong authoritarian leaders are taking power. And the question is whether the United States has just joined that club uh, in, in having a similar uh, leader leading our country. And uh, I don't know the answer. I know what he said during the campaign. I know what, I, uh, what my anxieties are. But I, I also know, this is the way I ended a, a column on Friday, on January 20, he is going to take an oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And you'd have to be crazy, and I don't think he's crazy, to be elected president and to have that responsibility and to walk into the Oval Office after he's taken that oath and not want to be a good president. I just don't, I don't believe that somebody wouldn't feel that, you know, it's an oath. So uh, that's my hope, is that we will have a president who is faithful to the oath that he takes uh, on January 20. And if he does that, then the other things I'm not going to worry about so much. So uh, let me turn to the audience. I hope people have comments, questions. Mainly, I hope you have comments. Uh, yes, ma'am. Yes, so the, the question was, how will the Chinese take advantage of, of this change in the, in the world order? Um, I, it's been written in the last couple days that the, the Chinese should be careful about what, what they wish for. They thought that they would like uh, President Trump, but there is this feeling among uh, these authoritarian leaders that, you know, here's a guy who knows how to sit down and, and make a deal. Um, my fear uh, traveling in Asia, I spent two weeks in Australia in August. As I mentioned, I was in South Korea uh, in October, but I spent a lot of time the last year uh, in, in Asia. And I encounter people who are just terribly worried that the positions that Donald Trump expressed in the election speak for America that this is an America that's really tired of playing the traditional, expensive role of leadership in the world. The TPP, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, is a good example. I mean, I've looked at it pretty carefully. I mean, as trade deals go, it's, it's, it's a good one. I mean, it's not, not going to change the world, but it's not, you know, it remedies a lot of the defects of, of NAFTA. But the point is, it was negotiated by the United States as part of an effort to say to Asian nations, we're here. The structure of support that we built after 1945 for your security and economic well-being, in which the United States is basically the guarantor of this order, persists. And here's a new multilateral agreement to, to reinforce that. Uh, and uh, if... TPP fails, and that's now no longer an if, because uh, it's happened. The Chinese are waiting with a whole uh, set of new institutions that they have been building. Uh, the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank is the most obvious, but there are a whole array of what they call one belt, one road uh, 
development structures, they've got their own version of what we built in 1944 and 1945 to provide order and support and require reciprocal loyalty uh, from the, they, so, you know, the best thing that could happen to them is an American retreat from these commitments, America saying, you know, we don't want the TPP. That, that's my biggest uh, fear. I think the economic consequences, pretty limited. Uh, there's a lot of trade in the world, and, I, you know, I don't really think Trump is going to radically alter that, but we'll see. I, I think the, the, the difficult problem is a strategic one, and I think that's real. I, I, Australians say to me, you know, David, uh, we have a problem. Our hearts are with you, but our wallets are with China. And, you know, in the end, people usually go with their wallets. Yes, Phil. Uh, you know, we're just guessing about him, as, as in truth we are about, about, uh, about Trump. Uh, my guess is that he will um, take yes for an answer. Uh, I mean, you know, Trump is saying, I, I like this guy, I can deal with him. This is a chance for Putin to, to come out of the doghouse. Russia is under sanctions. A, a weak Russian economy is beginning to suffer uh, from this. Uh, and uh, I would think the idea of, of being given, essentially, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card on the invasion of Crimea and uh, Ukraine uh, having, effectively, an offer of U.S. partnership in Syria and the wider Middle East, uh, I'd be surprised if he didn't take that. The one point to note is that, uh, according to... Uh, our Director of National Intelligence, uh, Jim Clapper, and your speaker next Sunday, our wonderful Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, Russia's most senior leaders have authorized a covert action program to destabilize our political system during this election year, encouraged by statements from one of the candidates. It's an extraordinary situation. I can't think of anything quite like it in our modern history. They are highly willing to take risks. And I, Phil, I think about, you know, we see those pictures of the supersonic Russian jets buzzing uh, our ships in the Black Sea and elsewhere at, at such incredibly close range. You know, a mistake, just the tiniest mistake of judgment. You could have a cat. And I think, okay, you gotta, you gotta unpack that. So the pilot of that plane is a risk-tolerant young, young kid. He's ready to do it. And his commander on the carrier that he launched the plane from or there, is ready to do it. And the Minister of Defense is ready to do it. And the guy, the minister, they're all, they are, I mean, you've got risk-taking all the way up the chain of command. And um, again, th those are situations where uh, bad things can happen. So I, I you know, I, I see the path ahead. I, as I tried to say in my remarks, I, I think it's a mistake to say, oh, you know, this is... But, but people need to really be vigilant. Uh, the, the, 
Put, I, I quoted someone uh, known to a number of us, Dmitry Symes, uh, had a, a proverb, uh, I think it was Steve Sasanovich actually, uh, to describe Putin. It's a, it's a Russian proverb, measure seven times, cut once. Meaning he's not impulsive, you know, he is calculating, but he cuts. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't disagree with that. I, 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 don't, I don't mean to, to be partisan, but th th I feel that way too. I think that um, uh, this is perceived around the world as evidence that the United States, a country many people suspected was in decline, is in fact in decline and has elected someone who simply isn't at the level that the world expects uh, of an American leader on, on different levels. Uh, I, I think one thing I've learned spending time with people in the, your former colleagues, people in the national security community generally, is that um, people are going to make sure that when they're given orders, they're lawful and proper orders. The idea that, you know, uh, we're just going to go back to torturing people because the president thinks that uh, it works, which as he said repeatedly during the campaign, I think the people who may be asked to do that, um, who despite their reservations after 9-11 went along, you know, well, we got an office of legal opinion, it's opinion that says, you know, I, this time I don't think people are gonna do it. I think they'll, they'll, they'll leave the Foreign Service or intelligence agencies before they'll do that. I think people, um, so I, you know, I, just to close with one thought about, about the basic points you made. What, what does our country represent around the world? When I first went to uh, cover the Middle East in 1980, uh, I walked down the Rue Bliss in Beirut uh, past American University. I'm sure there are a number of people in this congregation who've, who've done that. And I saw uh, on the gates of AUB uh, carved a simple statement that the Protestant missionaries who founded AUB and so many other uh, extraordinary symbols of what America is in the Middle East had carved there. And it was just, it was simple. It, it, the words say from the, from the Bible that, that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
If you remember that passage, uh, it preceded by the thieves come in the night to rob and plunder, but I come to say this. And it was a statement that the United States, unlike the colonial powers who were trying to steal things every day from people in that part of the world and every part of the world, it was different. And we, were, we, we really stood for the idea that you know, abundant life for us, for you, and I, th I think that, the, that we haven't lost that. The world still has this you know, basic sense of, um, of that American idealism and just an abundance. So I think holding on to that as tightly as we can as individuals, as foreign service officers, as U.S. military personnel deployed, uh, whatever we're doing, uh, I, I think in the long run that's a stronger than the person of the moment who, who happens to be making the speeches. I hope so. Uh, last, sorry. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's. So I'll, I'll just say a quick thing, and then I, I'm out of here. Um, I would be surprised if uh, the Israeli government, to which Donald Trump will pay a lot of attention, and the Russian government to which Donald Trump will pay a lot of attention, did not caution him about the dangers of rapidly undoing that agreement. So, uh, you know, I, among the many things I'm going to be watching as carefully as I can as, as a journalist is that slippage in that agreement could, um, you know, move us very quickly into a, a, a in, you know, those are the kinds of actions that do lead to to war, uh, and I think for that reason, um, uh, cool heads will caution careful action, e even if they're nominally advocates of undoing the deal, uh, but we'll see. So, Clark, thank Everyone, you.